Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 16 of the Recorded Future Podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are hot topics in cybersecurity and beyond. The terms get casually tossed around, often without context or explanation, to the point where it can be hard to know what's actually meant. Some say AI and ML will be our virtual saviors. Others offer cautionary tales of bots gone wrong. On today's show, we welcome back Christopher Alberg, CEO at Recorded Future, and Stéphane Trouvet, Recorded Future's Chief Technology Officer. We've got a wide-ranging, spirited discussion on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Stay with us. My favorite definition of artificial intelligence is when you have a machine doing something that if the same thing was done by a human, you would say that that was an intelligent thing to do. That's Stéphane Trouvet. So it's very hard to give any other definition. Uh, I think primarily because it's a sort of constantly changing field. There's actually a tendency that once you understood an area, you know, when you, then it sort of goes from being artificial intelligence to be algorithms in a way. So you're sort of constantly expanding the, the, the boundaries for what you can do in that way. Recently, a smart person I met, he, he made the point, though, to say that the problem with using the word AI is that now you end up in this whole sort of bots and humanoids and robots running around and taking over the world. That's Christopher Alberg. With machine learning, it's a little bit more of advanced self-learning algorithms. You know, it's a little bit more down to earth and, and let's go solve some problems rather than getting bots to take over the world. I can add to that, that, you know, I think, you know, when you start talking about AI, it, it sort of very easily becomes philosophy, whereas machine learning is... Statistics, way, yeah, extension. Statistic, math. Extent, extension of statistics and applying those statistics to, to solve some real problems. And, and you know, in many ways, you actually, if you're good at machine learning, you don't really care whether it's a 200-year-old statistical technique or it's a one-year-old new quote-unquote, machine learning technique, whatever is best at solving the problem versus, to someone's point, when you're an AI, you tend to be like, you know, it's more about proving out that your thing holds up to a Turing test versus not. Does AI and, and machine learning, do either of them suit particular tasks better than the other? I, I would say, that, uh, again, you know, you have to, there are different phrases for different things, but I would say that machine learning is one of the primary technologies you use to build AI systems, if you like. That's the way I would phrase it. The domain in which you can apply machine learning uh, is defined primarily by the availability of training data. The whole trick is that you can only use machine learning if there is a lot of training data for the algorithms. Otherwise, you can resort to other things, for example, rule-based systems, which is another way of building artificial intelligence systems. I, I would avoid anything that is trying to say is AI better than machine learning, is the one, you know, some qualitative sort of differentiation. It's, it's better to think about that machine learning is a part of the AI world. Many, many years ago, uh, you know, I'm going to age myself, uh, but in 1991, I took Stefan's AI course. Uh, the the spring of 1991. Can you imagine? Probably half the, the <laughs> listeners here were not alive at that point. And I took Stefan's AI course, and I was telling my son the other day that if I picked up the AI book from back then, I should do that. I still have that in the bookcase. I bet you pretty much every damn chapter is still up to date. 
not a lot have actually changed since then. And, and machine learning techniques was one set of the techniques, and, and uh, there's other techniques, and it sort of all remained pretty... Static is wrong because there have been a lot of cool developments, but the actual fundamentals are remarkably stable. Isn't that fair to say, Stefan, since you were my professor back then in, in 1991? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would agree. And, you know, the, the two things that really have changed is, one, you know, thanks to Moore's law, now we have much more storage and we have much more processing power. And the other one is really the availability of data. You know, again, it's the availability of data which makes the difference here. And I think it's interesting to note that the reason we can do machine learning in interesting ways at Recorded Future is that we have tons of data. Yeah, I, just as an aside, I mean, I remember as a as a teen, you know, we're working with 8-bit computers, you know, TRS-80s and Apples and so forth. And, uh, you know, the hot thing then, do you, and you, either of you guys remember Eliza? Absolutely. So Eliza was an early natural language processing computer program. It was created back in the 60s at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab. And mainly what it did was it simulated a psychotherapist. And it was pretty convincing, especially for a computer at the time. And then, you know, that was, I think, maybe for many of us, sort of that the first taste at something that made you feel like you weren't just interacting with a machine, like maybe there was more there, even though, you know, obviously very simple at the time. And, and that's a good distinction where Eliza was not machine learning or is still not machine learning to this day. Isn't that fair to no, say? That, that's exactly a kind of rule-based system, you know, an extremely simple one. That also actually, I think Eliza illustrates another thing. And, you know, that's the, you know, as humans, we very easily anthropomorphize. We are very eager to, to see intelligence or to, to think that a system behaves intelligent, even though it's just, you know, following a very simple schema to, to produce a dialogue. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And if my other old professor is here, Ben Schneiderman, down from University of Maryland, you know, he would say exactly that. And he would say that the the bottom line is actually that those anthropomorphic algorithms are very unlikely to be the best ones. It's better to be sort of uh, down to basics here and figure out, like, what's the algorithm that can actually solve the problem at hand? The interesting part, as we get into talking about cyber here, who cares about whether it's AI or machine learning or whether it sort of smells like a human or smells like a machine? What actually is interesting is whether it can help us solve problems that we otherwise have had a hard time dealing with. And, you know, for me, the big thing in, in quote unquote, cyber is to be able to make judgments about yet to be observed indicators. You know, what can I say about an IP address that I've never seen? What can I say about a domain that I've never seen? What can I say about a threat actor that has been dormant that may may come alive? And those sort of problems are those that actually may nicely be applicable if you want to, to machine learning. And now you're actually touching on another important thing, I think, is that very often you think of uh, AI as replacing humans, you know, so, you know, the really interesting stuff is really when you apply the same algorithms to things which you cannot do as a human, just as Christopher mentioned here, to be able to, for example, predict malicious IP addresses. Uh, it's using the same kind of algorithms, but it's actually doing something which is such a multidimensional problem that humans can't do it, but the machines can do it. They don't see the, the difference between that very hard problem for human and, and something which is trivial for us. So if we think about what we do here at Recorded Future, you know, where we have sort of a big stack of technology that helps people with ultimately provide them with this sort of visibility into cyber threats and, and help them discern and figure out what's most important to them. You know, we apply AI techniques at everything from sort of, we'll, we'll call it low level language consumption, NLP techniques to be able, you know, we ingest content in 30 different languages at very large scale 
from across the world. And so as we take that in, you know, conceivably that might be possible to be done by humans, but I don't think so. And to do it at the scale, we've had to use natural language processing techniques, AI techniques to, to do that. We apply uh, also, you know, we'll apply AI techniques at the very other end of the spectrum here, when kind of to the earlier discussion, we want to be able to make judgments on IP addresses that we've never seen before. And so, you know, this can fit in at many different levels and it can be helpful in many of those parts. What about intuition, the, you know, that sense that humans have that yeah, I can't quite put my finger on it, but something just doesn't feel right? This is exactly, you know, where the humans should be used. You know, that's why we, we like to talk about threat analyst centaurs, you know, sort of the combination of man and machine. And that's exactly the idea there, to to allow the machines to do what they're best at and, and to then give humans the time to focus on where we are especially good at things, which you cannot easily do with machines. That's why we've always done, spend, you know, through our careers here, we've been spending a lot of time, you know, thinking about how you help people solve very hard problems in, for example, helping people discover new drugs, helping people find new oil fields, help people chase terrorists, help people find new opportunities for financial investments, or in, in this case, you know, help people uh, detect new cyber threats. And as you think about those problems, they're not deterministic, or maybe the better way of saying it is there is no easy button. People always, you know, sort of outside our domain will come to me and say, that's great. So you can predict exactly when the next cyber attack is going to be. And I'm like, dude, that's not how it works. There is no easy button. And there is very unlikely to be an easy button for the next, you know, decade or two here. But if we can help out so that the machine does both the boring information consumption at a scale of nation states and also can at the you know beyond what nation states can do uh, today actually organize them sift through this data and in some cases make predictions about it and then visualize that data and that's when it really gets interesting visualize that data for the human, so that person can apply intuition, and that you know that's many times when intuition can really come into a play, because now you or come into play because now you can you do visual extrapolation and the sort of things that your cognitive and, per, and even more importantly your perceptual system as a human is remarkably good at. And so here we're now able then to take the stuff that the computer is really good at, high degree of consumption, large scale processing apply AI techniques to that and organize that information into visual displays of information where the human can apply its intuition, its both cognitive and perceptual capabilities that can solve the hardest problems in cyber. That's good. And I think there's also an interesting symmetry here. I mean, you know, on the on the opponent side, the bad guys, I mean, they're using a combination of sentient opponents, the humans, and, and algorithms. So, you know, to, to combat that, we need to do exactly the same thing. We need to combine machines and clever people on our side as well, for the defending side. Is there any sense that the, the bad guys are using AI and machine learning? Absolutely. I, yeah, no, I think there, there, you know, there are, you know, like, now the question is here, what do we call AI and so on? But, you know, domain, uh, you know, one of the big thing, challenges for, for an opponent is to generate... Uh, domain names for phishing campaigns and, and other sort of things. And, and so domain name generation algorithms, I'm using the wrong term for it there, but no question, people have used sort of algorithmic approaches to that. Uh, I don't know if you have other sort of examples. Where I think, you know, phishing campaigns is a good example, you know, when, when it's a question of, of creating a credible emails, for example, which people would click at, you know. So it used to be the fact that either you did sort of high volume phishing attacks with very simplistic approaches, 
or you could do spear phishing where a human engages in, in writing letters which would lure someone into clicking on something. Clearly, I think we will be seeing, or maybe already seeing, machine learning being applied in the same way there, you know, to, to create better phishing attacks automatically. But, but I think it's fair to say, though, that there's few threat actors who are consciously applying AI techniques. I don't think we see the hacktivists doing this. I don't see think we really are seeing criminals doing that. Now, if you went to the top intelligence agencies, be it in the West or um, on the enemy side of the, the side of things, you know, clearly they have research programs to do this. And you could Im- imagine all kinds of ways of applying AI, AI techniques on the on the attack side. No, and I think you're, you're right, Alex. I mean, I don't think it's being used in a large scale. And the reason is, of course, that they don't need to because the, the simple brute force methods they use work so far. You know, when I walk around a show like RSA, uh, it seems like every other booth, or really these days, practically every booth, are talking about their AI and, and ML capabilities. If I'm a consumer of these sorts of things, how do I cut through all of those buzzwords and uh, ensure that that my vendor is actually using the real deal? You don't is probably the, the real answer to it. You sort of don't really care, and you say, look, show me the, the results. Now, you know, and, and if you like the results, then, you know, maybe you like the technology. I would not be sort of caught up on whether, you know, whether it's some endpoint detection guy who says that he's using some algorithms for this or that, or, or you know, even what I've been talking about here, or we've been talking about here today, focus on the outcome, focus on the results, unless on whether they're on to the right AI technique or not. That's not the, what you should judge it on. Now, that said, you know, if you run a large-scale information security program at a bank or an oil company or, you know, something where you, you know, you're, you know, you want to make sure that you're putting your toe in the water and trying some things, you know, then, you know, I would ask people to sort of tell, you know, just a simple, okay, that's great. You're using machine learning techniques or AI techniques to say, tell me more. And I think once you've said that sentence, tell me more, that's when you're going to pretty quickly hear uh, whether they're onto something or not. Pretty quickly, you'll get a sense of what's, what's actually there or not. You know, if you look at the bulk of the guys, as you said, that you meet on the show floor, they are doing one or two things. One is like the traditional antivirus companies. They are using machine learning, you know, essentially to do pattern recognition, to to find new malware, you know, based on signatures, which they've been training on and so on. So that's pattern recognition. The second one is to do anomaly detection. Again, you know, you train a system of normal network behavior, for example, and then you can apply it to find strange behavior on a network. That's the bulk of people using machine learning in, in cyber today, I would say. And then there are a few like us who are doing, you know, trying to do harder things, you know, so to do the natural language processing, the prediction of, of future events and so on. And when you look at what you're capable of doing today and then you look toward the horizon in, in the next few years, what are the things that you can't do now that you would be excited to be able to do in the future? So what we've started to touch on here at Recorded Future is sort of, again, on the inbound side of things, be able to deal with human language. For now, we've sort of had to do that in a way where we sort of, for every new language we take on, we have to sort of do a, a good good amount of work. And we think we can radically cut the amount of work that we need to do when we take on new languages in a really good way. That's now, you know, again, as an end consumer, I may not care about that because, you know, but I, I do think that, you know, you one should care because that means that we can more rapidly add more languages and take, you know, sort of get into more nuances of language and, and, and those sort of things. But maybe on the other side is where it gets more exciting, which is, again, be able to 
discern and 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 make analysis or pr- produce an analysis on information that is yet or indicators that have yet been been observed. So once you can start saying something like that, this domain may be malicious, even though you've never observed it before, or this IP address have never been observed before. But again, we will we actually have certain confidence in that it it, it is part of a malicious family or that will go go malicious in the future. And once you know that, you're going to be able to start saying, you know, that that connect that to threat actors and campaigns and tool sets and, and those sort of things. Likewise, I think we're going to be able to get to a point here soon where we can look at a, a vulnerability that is just fresh out of the gate and based on, you know, and here's going to be a combination of classic statistical techniques and more AI-oriented or machine learning-based techniques be able to say whether this vulnerability is likely to be exploited and, and do that in a way that is, doesn't need to wait for a month for the government to come back and, and give you sort of a, a score. I think we can do that in a much more interesting fashion. So, they're, they're, you know, those are pretty good blocking and tackling sort of thing. Now, then, you know, you, there are other sort of tasks. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just push a button and get me a summary of everything that happened in cyber world today, you know, automatically write cyber wire, uh, you know, hey, uh, hey, 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 yeah, host a podcast, yeah, host a podcast automatically. No, look, but it's, it's not easy though. Those are, you know, years out, you know, you could imagine doing some simplistic stuff, but it's, 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 it's non-trivial to sort of get there. There's many reasons that humans are great at being humans and machines are great at being machines. So the exciting part, I think, is, is again, letting machines be machines and, and do what they do really well and then complement humans, not try to rep, you know, replace humans. That's sort of a fundamental tenet of what we do here at Recorded Future. I'm curious, are there any examples of things, say, 20, 30 years ago or more, where people, the common uh, accepted uh, knowledge was that, well, this is something that um, computers will probably never be able to do, and then in the modern day, that it's something that computers can pretty routinely do? I think, you know, we can go farther back. If you go back to the sort of the, the very birth of AI, you know, back in the 50s, the impression people had at that time was that uh, the hard things to do were things like, you know, having a computer play chess, because that was sort of seen as a sort of height of human intelligence, whereas people thought language understanding would, would be, and image understanding would be pretty simple things to do because we do it without thinking. And then the realization came that it was exactly the opposite, that uh, since chess is extremely structured and rule-based, it actually lends itself extremely well for machines to do it. You know, so then we had, you know, it still took us decades, actually, until the mid-90s before a chess-playing machine actually beat a human grandmaster in chess. And at that time, you know, everyone said, and the common wisdom was that image understanding, image description was extremely hard. You know, we would still not be able to do that. And now here we are again, 20 years later, and what's happened is that, you know, just thanks to the, the massive amount of training data and faster machines, machines are actually now becoming pretty good at classifying images, you know, and saying what's in them. Yeah. So it's, you know, so I think it's interesting to see this, this things evolving over time, you know, at certain points in time, one thing is hard, another one is, is easy. And it also shows that it's really hard for us to see going forward what will be the hard and easy tasks. And then, then you take that and you say, so that's nice, but you know, the, what is the equivalent of an image in in quote unquote cyber? And it's not easy. Nope. So there are many images, <laughs> and, and they're not very well defined. I mean, there isn't that kind of training data to yeah. be really available. So, 
So, you know, I think in the general public, when people think about AI and, and machine learning, you know, it's natural to go to the Terminator. Um, and I've even seen, you know, stories recently from folks like Elon Musk saying, you know, we really need to keep an eye on this. Uh, for, from your point of view, you know, people who are in the thick of these sorts of things, are, are there any real concerns about AI or are they overblown? I think you should differentiate between, you know, I think, you know, there, there are the, you, these Terminator things. First of all, that's robotics. You know, there's a whole different complexity in, in building physical systems, you know, which is beyond what we're talking about. We're just talking about software. Uh, you know, so I, I'm, I think there's a very long time before we need to worry about these sort of AI-driven machines wandering the streets, killing people. <laughs> that's not a concern. I think, you know, there, there are other aspects of of how AI will replace human jobs, of course, you know, because we're going to be automating a lot of routine work. But I, but I think the point is that on take robots, you know, sort of waking up one morning and saying we're done with the humans, we will see tens of thousands of people being killed, maybe hundreds of thousands of people being killed, being run over by self-driving cars uh, before we see any conscious rob robots sort of waking up, starting killing people. In that meantime, when all those self-driving cars have driven over you know, hit bunches of humans, I think we'll come up with all kinds of ways to stop robots from, from uh, killing humans right. so that by the time the robot has gained conscience a la T2 or Terminator, you know, maybe we sort of solved a few of those problems along the way. We're pretty far away from robots getting self-conscious or self-awareness here. I would actually partly disagree because I think, you know, you know, humans are the main cause of car accidents. So I think, you know, the self-driving cars might actually save more lives than they take. Uh, but still, the point... They're still going to kill thousands of people, probably, you know, like, right. you know, so in the meantime, so we'll have, yeah. you know, so we're going to have to come up with, all, you know, maybe if they, so let's assume that they cut number of accidents by 50% or even by, you know, even more, some address, drastic 90%. We're still going to have tens of thousands of people killed by cars. And I think we'll start putting in all kinds of rules into those cars that if they're even close to a human, you know, just stop them. And, and, and maybe actually, you know, sort of get back to the cyber threat, maybe the bigger thing we should worry about is, you know, hackers getting into the, the autonomous cars and doing things to them so that they behave in a much worse way. Well, I, I even think about, you know, things like privacy, where if these systems can, uh, in an automated way, you know, make connections with the various parts of my life, all the public records, my social media, the, you know, all those sorts of things, my day-to-day -day travels, you know, weaving together security cameras and places I've been and purchases I've made. I think people have concerns about their general privacy with that as well. I think the privacy concern is one. And, and also, you know, circling back to what I was saying before about phishing emails, you know, I think machines that get access to that kind of information will be able to provide phishing emails, you know, which contain parts of your private information will make it extremely hard for you to understand that it's, you know, a malicious thing coming to you. Our thanks to Christopher Alberg and Stefan Trouvet for joining us. If you're going to be at Black Hat in Las Vegas, be sure to stop by booth 1553 to find out how threat intelligence can benefit your company and meet the folks from Recorded Future. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. You can also find more intelligence analysis at recordedfuture.com slash blog. 
And remember to save the date for Our Fun, the sixth annual Threat Intelligence Conference coming up in October in Washington, D.C. Attendees will gain valuable insight into threat intelligence best practices by hearing from industry luminaries, peers, and recorded future experts. The details are at recordedfuture.com slash rfun. That's R-F-U-N. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 